You're listening to the New Century Multiverse, the Cartographer's Handbook, Remastered. Part 2. Our Changing History. Section 4. Initial Encounter. For many, the dire events of the past 11 years will have had a deeply personal impact upon them. They will know what occurred in the nearby area and may have received rumours of goings-on in other parts. They could have lived nomadic lives, journeying from place to place and searching for safety. It is doubtful that many are in possession of all the facts. Thanks to the forming of the Reunified States National Intelligence Agency in 1876, President Grant and myself were able to dispatch agents and information gatherers to every corner of the nation, to compile as complete as possible an archive of materials detailing the history of the outbreak. The following passages are merely a sample of the assembled archive, but do at least paint a picture of what beset us at the time, how it spread, and how we responded as a people. The word ghoul here is used by this civilian to describe the Wendigo. We have chosen not to alter her words to better reflect the feeling of the time. The following is a transcript of this individual's account. Maggie Struther, Charlottesville, Virginia, October 3rd, 1877. It would have been in early spring of 72 when I first set my eyes on a ghoul. Everybody living, I'd imagine, has a memory of their initial encounter. But back then, we were the first to bear witness and had no one else to commune with regarding their behavior. I thought it simply a savage or a nigger, wild with hunger and indeed the sight of his body so contorted and frantic chilled my very blood. I was born in Mississippi in 1806, and so was no stranger to vile things and disorders of the mind and body. But something seemed especially odd with this one. I remember clearly the setting sun was just touching the far end of the river bank, and everything was orange and shadows. He come running out the woods, clothing hanging off him like he didn't know it was there, or at least was refusing to acknowledge it. I sat up on my porch and looked at my gun. Our part of the country had near emptied of Negro folk over the last ten years, and so if there was to be an uprising, at least it would only be a small one at first. We would have time for reprisal. The ghoul turned and started sniffing the air. Sniffing like an old jackrabbit. Must have smelled something he thought would either be a danger to his person or a tasty morsel. Possibly both. He turned away from me and started creeping in the back of the Henshaw house. I quietly got up off my porch, bringing my gun with me trying to see what he was up to. As I stood, I figured what he had smelled. They were cooking up a stew for their supper, and it looked like this fellow was very much in the mood for stew this evening. 
I heard a crunch and saw the Henshaw back door give way. I hollered out for help and moved round to the backyard as fast as my leg would permit me. There were screams and the sound of breaking crockery. I poked my head in the back door and saw Bill Henshaw cradling his wife's head in his hands. They were on the floor and the table was flung back. A cooking pot sat on its side in the corner with stew steaming on the boards. Across the lower half of her body was the twitching form of this ghoul. Its neck had been cut like a hog's, and copious quantities of blood had soaked into the front of her dress. I could see vicious bite marks at Helen's throat, and she was whimpering and sobbing. Bill, his arms soaked in blood, was holding a towel to her wounds and dabbing at them. The rest of the neighbors arrived over the next few minutes, and we dared move the dead nigger, which was what we still thought it was, out into the backyard. I said I'd stay with the Henshaws all night in case there were more, and proffered Lafayette, my Remington, to calm their spirits. In truth, I think I just did not want to be alone that night myself. The dead creature was inspected from afar by half the street. In the lamplight, he now just appeared to be a real filthy white man. In fact, now that I recall, we discovered a U.S. Navy tattoo on his right shoulder. Helen was calmer now, and by nine she was getting quite tipsy, having drunk enough brandy to steady the nerves of a whole regiment. Leastways, we thought she had. When it transpired that she had barely swallowed a glassful, I could see Bill growing paler. When Dr. Bridges finally arrived to see to her, the bleeding had long stopped, but by now she was using language most unbefitting a gentle lady. She spat in the medical man's face and would not let him touch her further. Bill went to talk with the dark outside, leaving me with Helen. This next part I will never forget. She spent a long time breathing in a ragged croak. Sitting up against the parlor wall, her hands crossed on her lap. Then, when she opened her eyes, they drifted around the room as though from a dream, and she glanced up at me. Fire, she said. Teeth. Fire teeth. She repeated this several more times as though checking the words over in her mind. I felt like a child in Sunday school trying to ascertain the meaning here. Her hair lolled round a spell, and then she began to drum at the wall with her elbow, softly and rhythmically at first, but soon with urgency and passion, all the while smiling broadly. 
I was now shouting at her to comport herself and became aware that Bill had re-entered the room. He rushed to her side and held her arms together. She screamed at him and bit like a dog, snapping close to his face. He called out her name over and over, begging her to be still. She would not. I caught flashes of her eyes, panicked and wild. Not a shred of recognition for either of us. She tore and spat and writhed about, clearly in the grip of a fit of some kind. Dr. Bridges rushed in, holding a needle. It took some supreme effort for Bill to hold her arm steady long enough for it to go in. Her last screech sounded more like a wounded coyote than the woman I had waved to every morning for fifteen years. I was crying. I found I could not stop, pleading with Helen to be still and wringing my hands. The darkened Bill got upstairs and into bed, then set about clearing the room of all breakables. Bridges was muttering something about her being a danger to all around her. He could not know how right he was. We locked her in and retreated to the kitchen to tidy up and brew some coffee, dreading the possibility of further hysterics. Sure enough, Within the hour, a bedlam was forming in the upstairs of the house. We heard hollering and crashing, and a pitiful high-pitched screaming that went on for an age. The neighbors once again came by, and we had to tell them that Helen was desperately ill and suffering from a delusional fever. They made polite but concerned noises about the spread of disease. It was when the bedroom fell silent that Bill straightened up and drained his mug. We shooed the gaggle of neighbors and made our way back up the stairs. Bill knocked and called out to Helen. There was a series of gasps from inside the room, and fearing her choking in some way, he unlocked and opened the door. The sight that greeted us will never leave me. The bed had been overturned. Bloody handprints lined the walls. Just the smell of blood and shit was enough to make me reel back. As I did so, I caught sight of Helen in the far corner. She was now entirely naked and crouched with her fingers to the ground and knees splayed out at angles. This is a familiar stance to the world now, I warrant. But in 72... The closest I had seen a creature assuming this state of quivering readiness had been a bobcat I once caught in mid-spring upon an unsuspecting rooster. Her hair hung loose around her face, her eyes enormous and blazing orange. It was so unsettling to see it then. I don't think I will ever find it commonplace. No matter how long we live with the ghoul, it was as though a tailor had removed the eyes of a fair creature and neatly sewn them into Helen's pretty face. Bill got two words out before she jumped. I had not brought my gun, cause frightening though she had been in her earlier state, none of us had thought that actually ending her life like a lame horse would have been on the cards here. 
we were entirely unprepared for how strong she would be, and how fast. Bill was unbounced and fell against me. Dr. Bridges had gone to his kit bag, but as she barged me aside, the man crouched on the stairwell, busied with retrieving medical implements. Must have proved too tempting to Helen, or what remained of her. Slamming him back against the banister with one hand, she sank her jaws into his cheek. Bridges had been momentarily stunned, but now screamed like a terrified child. Over and over, she bit into his face, mauling him. Bill had picked himself up and now threw his body at the struggling pair. I could only watch helplessly as they tumbled down the staircase, a heaving mess of limbs and teeth. I crawled forwards and looked down, afraid of what I might see. The doctor lay groaning, the front doorway wide open. Bill was silent, and I could see neither hide nor hair Helen. I gingerly made my way down the stairs, stealing myself against my natural revulsion to Bridges' ruined face. One eye had ruptured, and he was falling prey to spasms of shock. Bill lay quietly breathing. I inquired as to his state of mind and body. She's gone, was all he would say. His collarbone had busted in the fall, and he expired before morning. By then, the dark had already turned, and Helen Henshaw had spread her infection across half the town. Looking back, had I known then the danger all of us were in, I would, by rights, have put the bullet in her forehead and had done with the whole ordeal. But of course, nobody knew. That was not how we dealt with the deranged. There was no call for it. Seeing what's happened to the country these years past, I can only guess that a similar handicap must have befallen many people during those first encounters, when appropriately practical action was so essential and so rarely applied. It is, plainly speaking, far harder to turn your mind swiftly to the thoughts of ending the life of someone in torment or in the grip of an aggressive spell if that person is someone dear to you. Maggie Struther gave this account at the Briars Encampment, several miles north of Charlottesville, in the fall of 1877. Six days later, it was overrun. You have been listening to section 4 of the Cartographer's Handbook, Remastered, Initial Encounter. Written by Alexander Shaw. Thomas W. Arlington, performed by Alex Shaw. Maggie Struther, performed by Loretta Saylor. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. 
Snake Lady and Dreams Become Real, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chesham. <laughs>